0: Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review. And here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to December's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Coming up, we've got an interview with Ken Brinston, managing director of ASX listed Pilbara Minerals. One of the world's foremost hard rock lithium producers. But firstly we'll start with our regular recap of all the news in the world of batteries and battery materials this month. I'd like to introduce Cormac O'Lera, MD of Electrios Energy, and we're going to run through what's been going on in the last month in battery land. Welcome Cormac. Hi Matt, great to be back again. Pretty interesting three or four weeks since we spoke last. I guess just so we can get it out of the way, we should probably start off with um, with COP twenty six. A lot of headlines on, uh, well, in the UK, uh, obviously, with the meeting being here. What did you hear about it in China? Looking
1: out for the uh, announcements regarding uh, EVs or batteries or anything like that. And the, the big thing that stood out for me was the uh, the pledge that emerged: the phase out of petrol and diesel vehicles by twenty forty was signed by. Number of countries, not all countries, but it just shows the you know where we need to go in regards to the transition towards electric vehicles. But what didn't come up too much was the song you constantly like to sing was well, that's fine, but where are the raw material is going to come from, and that's still going to remain an issue. So by 2040, a lot of people might find themselves without any mode of transport if we phase out uh, petrol and diesel too quickly or transition to EVs too quickly without having the adequate base in place so that needs to happen between now and 2040.
0: We were those of us who 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 are in uh, my sort of industry were quite worried by the continued negative rhetoric on the on the mining industry which came out very very much from the conference and uh, you know I I don't want to get on my um, on my soapbox again but if the energy transition is going to go forward the mining industry is going to have to be a core part of that. And I think that politicians need to to wake up to that because at the moment there seems to be very much a perception in the market that we can get by with the circular economy with recycling, etc. And that's simply not going to be possible. I mean recycling is is not going to contribute material supply to the market probably for 15 years. So there needs to be some sort of degree of focus on primary industries. And it just seems to me that politicians look at all primary industries, whether they're hydrocarbon industries or whether they're mining extractive industries in the same way. And they're, they're kind of throwing the baby out with bathwater here. And it's awfully dangerous. You know, the rhetoric, particularly from the, from the UN Secretary General, is not helpful for what the mining industry and, and what, uh, you know, a lot of industries are trying to do in terms of decarbonisation. Yeah, well, I I think mining industry needs a
1: new marketing approach. You know, most people... It certainly has an image problem, doesn't it? (laughs) People probably envisage coal mining in Wales as equivalent to any mining project, but including myself a few years ago, I had to look into it. But mining has really transformed, especially over the last five years, to carbon neutral mining, intelligent mining, smart mining. It's really impressive. Mining is not just pickaxes and uh, shovels anymore, or if ever it was, but... It's impressive how much technology has been innovated into mining. And I I think that message needs to get out there that not only has every every industry been um, transformed over the last decade with uh, improvements in technology, so is mining.
0: And uh, that needs to be shown. Yes. I mean, I think the mining industry in many ways is its own worst enemy in terms of not communicating. There kind of needs to be an industry body that comes out and stands up for the mining industry and says, look, guys, maybe you know, you're using outmoded data and, and outmoded photographs and pictures and everything. And maybe you guys need to to actually come and see a 21st century mine and, and realize that, you know, we're not all like that. What's been going on in China over the last, um, last few weeks? Quite a lot. Well, it was a slow news month,
1: really. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> my newsletter is particularly short, but there, there was an, a few events. Namely, uh, well, what I... Particularly monitor is the uh, EV uh, production, uh, our NEV production in China now counts for end of November, two point eight million vehicles. That's including PHEV, fuel cell EV, and BEV, both passenger and commercial. It's huge number. Yeah, last month uh, was uh, over four hundred thousand. NEVs produced in November. So it's uh, one of the, uh, or is the most productive month in the history of China NEV production. So what I also look at is the EV batteries and in uh, during November, LFP really left a uh, ternary behind. It's, uh, I think it's like 36% ternary production and 63% uh, LFP.
0: That's and a huge won. jump because we've been monitoring for the last sort of two to three months that the LFP precursor production has been really jumping ahead of ternary. But yep. it's interesting to see the actual battery production moving as well. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, Benchmark came out with a, a very interesting data point in their um, cathode week, actually, this week, where they said that if you look at the pipeline of battery projects, there's no way that with the current pipeline... LFP can get the same sort of market share that a lot of people are are calling for. So it'd be very interesting to see if we see a lot more LFP capacity announcements coming through because at at the moment, you kind of get the impression that LFP, if it continues along this trajectory, could get to sort of 30 to 40% of global battery production by the end of the decade. But if the, the actual battery factories are not announced... Then it's it's going to be very difficult. So uh, was, I thought it was about quite an interesting data point. I think ten percent, ten or fifteen percent, was the number they used, which is obviously a very different to a lot of commentators who, from a top-down point of view, are sort of expecting LFP to be thirty to forty percent of the industry. Yeah, especially
1: with the expiration of the uh, patents this year, during this period actually, uh, end of this year, uh, you know, you won't hear any announcements perhaps after that. But this month alone in China, there's been over 10 announcements of precursor and LFP cam production facilities. Minimum capacity is 100,000 tons, some as large as 500,000 tons. So there's no shortage of announcements on the upstream area for in lithium iron phosphate in in China. Some very large companies, as you said, but nothing outside China. Actually, I think there's going to be an LFP, LFP facility in Indonesia. That is with I think it's Huawei Cobalt. Somebody, yeah, I believe, don't quote me. Oh, it's a Lopal, Lopal, L O P A L. A lot of these companies that who are getting into the iron and phosphate game in um, in China were former or are, are current, like fertilizer companies in China. Uh, who,
0: I've seen a few uh, of those, yeah. And uh, environmental waste management companies. So so companies with a lot of experience of working in the battery space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, that, that point that you make about a lack of LFP precursor and and sort of cathode facilities is not just to do with LFP. I mean that's that's a recurring thematic in the battery space, this this lack of investment in midstream. So it's, you know, it's LFP, it's ternary cathodes as well. There's a lack of anode capacity in Europe, in the US. So yeah, I mean it's going to be very interesting. I think there's probably, I think, four or five battery factories on the drawing board that I know of in Europe that will be LFP. None that I know well, maybe one small one in the US, but uh, yeah, if if the if LFP is to go to grow as much as we expect it, we need to see more mid and downstream announcements in that space. I think,
1: yeah, you know, there's a potential for it not to grow as expected, also.
0: Um... yes, <laughs> well, I, well, yes, I, I mean, it came out of nowhere 18 months ago, it can probably go back to nowhere within another couple of years if if another competing technology comes out. Well, well. you
1: know, long-term outlook for NMC uh, nickel cathodes is there's little ceiling room for LFP to get any more energy dense or go lower in costs, where there's plenty room for the high nickel materials to, lower, first of all, go lower in cost, become safer, because there's still a relatively long window open to these materials to mature. Uh, LFP is quite a mature cathode. Where, as you, uh, you know, you just mentioned 811, you know, just surfaced in 2017, 2018, high nickel, not really commercially available NCA version, of course, but not the anything nine higher, 90% or higher that's coming in next year. But there's plenty room for those materials to lower costs, increase safety while being, you know, 30% more energy
0: dense than uh, LFP. That sort of seeds into to something else I wanted to talk about this month, yeah. which is the BNEF battery survey. So this is the annual battery survey that Bloomberg New Energy Finance carry out, which looks at the average pack and sell prices of uh, effectively EV batteries. And it it came out with quite an interesting conclusion this month, which is that average pack prices fell 6% year-on-year to $132 per kilowatt hour. But interestingly, we're starting to see sell prices increase in the fourth quarter of the year. And I think that comes back to this point that you're making. At the moment, it looks like the only reason that we managed to get that pack price decrease is because LFP has has got greater market share this year compared to, to ternary batteries. So I guess the big question is, do we see cell cost improvements in ternary? Or are we expecting most of the cost improvements at the pack level to do with with better manufacturing and economies of scale?
1: Well, I don't think LFP has the greater market share globally right now. It's, uh, no, no, it doesn't. It's yeah. twenty to thirty percent, I think. You know, CHL is a majority LFP producer. It is most of its uh, cells are lithium iron phosphate? I think it's 60-40 or something, some close to that for uh, versus NMC. And CATL have not increased battery prices this year. In fact, they've lowered them. And, and, and maybe that's why we're seeing like the single digit uh, drops close to 6%, which I think is similar to the number that CATL have average have lowered their watt hour cost per watt hour, or no, RMB per watt hour. I think, yeah, you're right that LFPs had a major influence this year on, and might have saved the battery cell forecast predictors, save face for them. Again, as you know, overall pack price went down. I think I noticed in uh, in the battery materials review, you had some data I've seen before here in China, which is that battery packs prices have not increased in line with raw materials. And you know, there's a, a few reasons for that. Could be the LFP, could be a big reason that the OEMs are not willing. uh you know doesn't go along with the uh, the story they're trying to tell about cheaper EVs. So somebody's been uh, you know absorbing those costs.
0: I think the the situation that we're seeing is that obviously we saw the cell price increase in China announced last month, but it's not coming up to the pack level. And obviously the difference between the cell and the pack level is the modular chemistry and the packaging around the cells. And obviously with the launch of the BYD blade chemistry, et cetera, and different, I suppose what you call the mountings for LFP batteries less packaging is needed, less thermal management systems are needed. So the pack density for LFP batteries is more comparable or or more competitive, shall we say, with with ternary, whereas obviously the cell densities for LFP batteries are non-competitive with ternary. So the big question on the ternary side is, can we get further pack energy density improvements? And is that going to be enough to offset? higher raw material prices, because the high raw material prices are here to stay at least for the next two to three years, I would say. And that's going to impact LFP and ternary, but it's going to potentially impact ternary more because it's uh, the nickel and certainly the cobalt parts of the cell are expensive components of the cell. So really, the big question is is going to be, are we going to get the pack level improvements in ternary, similar to what we've seen in, in LFP?
1: We have one coming, steaming in, Q1 2022. It's the 4860 cell from Tesla. Well, Tesla, Panasonic, S-fold, EV Energy, Samsung, everybody has had a crack of um, building this uh, 4860 cell. And this this is going to really uh, change the metrics around energy density, pack weight, not just for Tesla, for who all the other companies that are going to apply this technology. But um, a lot of the companies are trying to develop the 4680 to uh, obviously to a, a core Tesla and become a supplier. But uh, a lot of work's been done in the last year on the 4680 and um, namely by Pan- uh, Panasonic. But uh, a lot of the work's been done on the NCA. Uh, so NCA will, will might be the first version of the 4860. Am i getting a 486. I'm getting a 4680. Wrong. 4680 <laughs> uh, will be the four, first version, and then might, we will might see the high nickel 811, 90 percent nickel, something like that. And then, if that all works out, then it's envisaged that uh, we're seeing an LFP 4680 cell. As you were just stating, what's next for ternaries? I think it's the 4680 uh, might change the whole landscape. Beyond that, cell to chassis technology can that be? Well, a, that that a, could that could be that will be the cell to chassis. It could be the shelter chassis. Sassy, it could be the shelter Pack, but uh, we know Tesla and their Gigafactory Berlin opening were showing some, um, not even mock-ups. Maybe they were mock-ups, but they were real chassis with batteries as components. So this, I think, is the next big thing for uh, the battery industry. And, and it might just, it will make Ternary and NMC and High Nickel competitive
0: again with um, LFP. So yeah. so really, the big question is, do these manufacturing improvements, are these manufacturing improvements enough to offset higher raw material prices? Or will we get an increase in pack prices despite these manufacturing improvements? And I like to right. sit on the fence, but my gut feeling is that that we will get a small increase in pack prices. And if that's the case, what does that do to the economics of electric vehicles, which, you know by the way, are still, well, electric vehicles obviously still retailing for materially above ICEs to sort of get into that mass market area, we're needing to see pack prices decrease. So, if they stay flat or they actually increase, what's that going to do you know, for take up of uh, electric vehicles in the market. So far, to be fair, it hasn't really done anything. I mean, electric vehicle sales are absolutely going ballistic, but uh, it will be very interesting to see, you know, where we go in the next 12 to 18 months. I don't see any slowdown
1: uh, in the, you know, it's uh, EV sales uh, in China are like teens and teens, upper teens, I think 19% last month. So it's... uh, and Germany is showing huge uh, numbers also. Uh, France um, and Germany is coming even more aggressive on ICE phase-out. Uh, so with subsidies and incentives, they're not going to be withdrawn anytime soon in, in Europe yeah. or, or U.S. actually. U.S. is some very You can get up to $12,000 uh, in uh, subsidies and incentives. It's uh, yeah for a union-made EV uh, with batteries also made in the U.S., so... I think that's
0: pending uh, potential challenges from the uh, Canadians and Mexicans who aren't uh, overly happy about that as a a strategy. And you can kind of understand where the Canadians in particular are coming from, given that the bulk of the raw materials for said EVs are likely to be coming from Canada. So um, for the Americans to sort of happily take Canadian natural resources, utilize them in the batteries and EV manufacturer, and then prioritize American-made EVs over over potential other North American EVs, yeah. you can understand why the Canadians might be a little bit upset by that. This brings us on to I think another piece of really interesting news flow in this month, which is the decision of Johnson Matthew to to exit its effectively cathode materials business. And uh, JM had, had dropped probably about three hundred and fifty million pounds into this business over the past five years. You know, it was a little bit cloudy about. Why they were dropping it, but basically implied it was because it was a a low margin business which didn't didn't really agree with johnson Matthew's sort of plans going forward. Quite an interesting move, given you've dropped five years and three hundred and fifty million pounds worth of capex into the business. Would not you say I think it's more than five years uh, they've hired a lot of people
1: they've built a pilot plant in the u k for this e l n o they're finishing the plant in Poland. You know that's that's going ahead. They put the business up for sale. You know they they did a lot of work, but they developed their own cathode material. The ELNO extreme high nickel. I'm around just saying the E stands for. But um, did they tie their wagon to the wrong horse. Or you know, high nickel. Are they seeing difficulties in acquiring nickel? What's the problem?
0: It didn't come out. Well, say, I mean, I think yeah. the other question is: uh, Are they seeing issues in qualification? Are they struggling to to get it into vehicles? How does it compete with other other cathode families out there? Perhaps for the cost, it doesn't doesn't compete well with eight one one or you know nine nine one zero or five two three or LFP even. So yeah, I think you know it's a it's a very interesting move, particularly when taken with Unicore's. Uh, profit warning, which actually came out this week, uh, probably last week, by the time you're listening to this podcast, again, based off the performance of its cathode materials division. And Umicore now suggesting that perhaps they made a little bit of a strategic mistake by focusing on on mid-level nickel cathodes rather than high nickel cathodes. So certainly, you know, as an analyst, we have wondered about the relative underperformance of Umicore's cathode material business over the last couple of years when the Chinese and Korean cathode makers in in particular are uh, reporting very strong performance. And it, it seems now that perhaps Umicore also has uh, possibly gone down the less good route in terms of not moving with a, with a high nickel cathode. So it's clear that the cathode business is is quite a complex industry to be in. You know, you have to be perhaps a little bit more fluid and, and entrepreneurial than perhaps the European cathode makers have, have proved to be so far.
1: Mid-level is almost gone now. As a future, uh, if you're building a cathode plant, you're not building it for like a 50% nickel. Even, you know, it was 60%, the 622 is... I think still market dominant. It is market dominant, but uh, all new cathode plant announcements are all either high nickel NCA or high nickel NCM and if NMC. And if you're not if you're not moving with that, and you're not uh, if you're not catering to that market, then uh, I don't see anybody wanting to uh, not anybody, but uh, depending what what OEM you are, would like to tie themselves to a mid level fifty percent nickel when all the competitors are going to be using a lot more nickel-dominant cathode materials. I don't think it's that easy to um, retrofit, outfit, adjust, or, you know, as you said, be fluid or
0: even be flexible in your cathode plants. Oh, no, no, I meant up? strategically flexible. So, you yeah. know, adapting to new technologies coming down coming down the line rather than yeah. making your plants flexible. No, I, I would agree on that. I mean, it's like battery plants. I mean, how, how easy is it going to be to retrofit an NCM cell plant? produce LFP or, or solid-state batteries, I would imagine that's going to be very difficult going forward. So,
1: yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah.
0: If JM invested
1: three three fifty mil and the ELNO, uh, you know the the plant they're building in in Poland was only for ten thousand tons a year, so um, I'm not aware of any OEM who was testing their material as a potential uh, candidate. So, or a battery company that was. Also, either uh, either a battery company testing the material or a, a, any announcement of an agreement. So uh, it was a bit quiet in that front, I,
0: I thought. Are you aware of anything? I mean, a, a few mutterings and rumblings that, that various companies were doing qualification, but but no named companies. And that's really the, the problem. If, you, if you're trying to bring a new product out of nowhere, it's much more difficult than, than if you... You know, particularly when you're not in that business at all to start yeah. off with. I mean, you know, if I'm a EcoPro BM and I launch a new cathode material, it's very different to, you know, if obviously if I'm a Johnson Matthew and I launch a new cathode material, because if I can, I'm an EcoPro BM, I've, I've already got the customer base, and presumably I've talked to them about you know the viability of launching this material. They trust my production already. Whereas if I'm a, a Johnson Matthew trying to break in from outside, it's going to be a lot more difficult to. Um, uh, to get that sort of um, that sort of buy-in. And I think, you know, this talks a little bit about the, the barriers to entry in the cathode business. And it's very interesting that that Redwood Materials, the US developer, is talking about uh, licensing existing technology from LNF, the yeah. South Korean cathode producer, rather than developing its own technology. And I think that probably says all, all you need to know about JMATs. Plan to to go off on its own without already having a position in the Catholic business. Yeah, I agree. Um,
1: if, if you read the recent announcement, also Beijing EA Spring are planning to set up in Europe now. Um, you know, because with JM stepping out. Where are the European gigafactory is going to get the cathode materials from? You know, uh, BSF's made some, uh, you know, big announcements. They have put money in their building plants, but they're only going to produce about 35,000 tons a year, which is not going to be close. And that's not even coming in this year or next year. It's not even going to be close to what's required or what the gigafactories are going to need.
0: I mean, there's yeah. the new Umicore plant, which I think um, it, I is think opening I've, at the moment. Now, God knows if that's know. going to be 523 or if it's going to be uh, something with high nickel, higher nickel in. But uh, So there's that. And I think some of the Korean cathode makers have announced capacity as well in Europe, but certainly not enough for the amount of cell capacity that's going on or planned to go on. So we really do need to see you know, more investment on not only the cathode material, but also the anode material space and and quite rapidly I would suggest well add materials a bit more up in the air Europe
1: Volkswagen more or less indicated that they are interested in synthetic graphite uh, in the VW power day and you yeah, know, you wonder something- how
0: viable that's going to be now though I mean certainly you know what we're hearing in China is um, the power outages have affected the graphitization capacity you do worry about the ability of, of synthetic graphite to expand or i should say synthetic graphite supply to expand over time don't want to get into the whole expandable graphite situation there and i think the other point is i i'm not sure that when vw indicated that they understood the huge environmental ramifications of utilizing synthetic graphite in their vehicles so yeah it'd be interesting to see whether um Volkswagen maybe change their tune in terms of the uh, use of synthetic graphite in, in their vehicles going forward. And what you just said
1: about China, Ch- China, you know, is uh, very, very uh, heavy in on uh, synthetic graphite, but in the last couple of months, also uh, showing great, greater interest towards uh, natural graphite for some of the reasons you just mentioned, you know, it's, there's a number of reasons, but it just shows again, it looked like natural graphite, our synthetic was going to be dominant in the Chinese market, but now it looks like it's going to be, you know, a shared market again uh, for a number of reasons, including the power outages, the power it requires for the synthetic graphite, the raw materials. So still, does it, it's hard to see which one is going to be dominant. But if these issues remain in the, in the coming years, um, I can see, you know, a natural graphite really going get, getting a foothold, but, you know, it has to be sourced. And it requires mining, uh, so
0: um. the mining industry is certainly not the issue in terms of natural graphite. I think the problem at the moment is the is the midstream. It's the spheronizing, it's the purification, micronization, it's the midstream graphite production, and obviously this is done extensively in China, but hasn't really been done to to any great extent outside China. And it's about you know constructing these facilities. And it's about getting them up to to spec in in terms of, and also capacity. And then after that, we're hearing it takes a long time to qualify this material. So maybe 12 months, maybe 24 months. Once you have the production facility producing anode materials, you then need to requalify that material with the cell maker. And it can take a long time. So these midstream plants in anode materials Outside China, need to start building now if we're going to have the supply by realistically 2024 at the earliest. So yeah, all these guys need to need to be able to access capital and, and get cracking.
1: Yeah, a lot of the uh, graphite projects I'm reading about and announced are are, are are up and running uh, outside China. seem uh, to be interested in also doing uh, the. Uh, the processing of the graphite on site is is that
0: is that the way it might be heading outside china or well, you... I, yeah i mean i think obviously there is an interest in forming an ex china industry because obviously everybody knows that china dominates sort of 90 plus percent of the uh, of the anode materials industry and certainly the us and europe want to want to set up their own midstream facilities for, for anode production. So yes, very much that's the way it's going. In terms of sort of setting up the processing on site, realistically, unless you're using chemical purification, you've got to be focusing on areas with cheap and clean power. So realistically, the, the, the areas where we're sort of seeing that are in uh, Northern Europe in the in the Nordic region where they've obviously got a large amount of hydroelectric power In Canada, in Ontario and Quebec, where ditto, they're using a a lot of hydroelectric power and potentially in certain parts of Brazil, where again, they've got access to hydroelectric power. But otherwise, it's not an ideal situation to, to put your midstream, certainly purification and micronization facility, which is quite power intensive, into a region where you're using grid power, which is derived from hydrocarbons. Just finishing up, uh, it would be quite interesting to talk a little bit. I mean, you talked earlier about the huge growth in, in EV production out of China in November. It would be quite interesting to talk a little bit about what we're seeing in terms of EV sales. The Wuling Hanguan Mini averaging a 14% market share this year uh, in China, so beating both of the Tesla models. Interestingly, in October, we're starting to see a new sort of player coming into the mix, which is the Great Wall Aura R3. And we, we talked a little bit about this earlier offline, but this is quite an interesting vehicle because the Chinese model has got a 48 well starting level as a 48 kilowatt hour battery. Again, it retails at sub $10,000. It's moved into the number eight position in terms of sales in October, but potentially a, a Wuling Hongguan Mini of the future, Cormac, what do you think?
1: We were quite bullish on the uh, mini EVs, but um, might be just be ruled by the ruling. I think if you look at the top three EV sellers in China, it's like the fifty K club. They all sell over fifty thousand cars a month. Uh, where everybody else is like uh, Great Wall, I guess, with the Aura, as you, was it fourteen thousand a month, which as close as it gets. Almost um, yeah. you know the, everyone else is like fifteen thousand or less. So it's a long way to go from 15,000 to 50,000 a month. And BYD, the wuling and Tesla are just dominating and that space. The Tesla's uh, production numbers have been going down month by month. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, there
0: was a big drop in um, in, in October, actually. Well, I mean, Tesla's delivery numbers are a little bit weird, to be fair. They're, they're quite nuggety. In Europe, for instance, I mean, we picked it up in the review this month. There's been I think three months when they're delivered over 20,000 units and and four months this year when they delivered, You know, they've been practically outside the top 10 in terms of deliveries. So in in Europe, they're quite nuggety given that obviously they don't have a gigafactory there. Also in China, they've been a little bit nuggety and, and the Tesla Model 3 dropped entirely out of the top 10 in China in October. So I don't know if Tesla are having perhaps semi- issues sourcing semiconductors or if they've been having production issues at the Shanghai factory. but certainly their numbers are a little bit uh, nuggety at the moment.
1: Yeah and split production right between the Model Y and Model 3. I think it's uh, 60% Is sixty percent of the cars made in Shanghai now are exported which is huge and also affecting the overall sales in China but um, the speed of this factory uh, is quite astonishing. You know Tesla it's already up to 500,000 uh, cars a year, Shanghai Gigafactory. Yeah. Um,
0: well, it's a good thing it is because they continue to have problems with the with the Berlin Gigafactory. And, you know, it oh, now everybody. looks like being well into 2022 before it sort of uh, comes up and running. So, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a good thing that, that Shanghai is, is performing so well, I think.
1: Yeah, Texas might be open before Berlin.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh. yeah. Moving on just beyond Tesla very quickly, Dacia Spring is a car. We've talked a little bit about before, um, certainly talked about in the review, talked a little bit about the podcast. Uh, it's only launched in Europe in the last three months. It went into the top 10 in September. Uh, it's gone to a number four position in Europe for sales in October. And it looks set to give incumbents like the Renault Zoe and the VW ID. Three quite a good run for their money This is a very interesting vehicle. It's sort of like the equivalent of the Chinese Mini EV. It's only got a 27 kilowatt hour battery, 170 kilometer real range, and it retails for around about 20,000 euros. So it's going to be very interesting. I think this could be the sort of new look for electric vehicles in Europe. And if this manages to get mass market volumes, I think it potentially sets sets the way for Europe to follow China in terms of the the focus more on price than on battery size yeah yeah well um the, the, the car the Dacia spring looks it's not so much a mini ev as a mini suv right it's uh, a mini suv yeah it's not a, it's not a mini like the ruling yeah yeah which is very much just a, you know uh, um, a cockpit and wheels effectively yeah <laughs> it, it is a proper car yeah it's <laughs> so what the range is
1: uh, so it's a 26 kilowatt hour pack oh, yeah 170 kilometer range, uh, yeah. a little run around the city, I guess. You know, it looks like quite a light car. If you look at the um, the wheels, the tires, it looks uh, quite light. But the, uh, the reason I mentioned the SUV, look, uh, the recent Guangzhou uh, car show, the electric SUVs were, you know, the, the real highlight of the shows. Uh, a lot of car producers were you know, really, uh, produced a lot of models that are uh, for this market, the electric SUV market, uh, as opposed to the, um, that was more of a high end, more high end, but, uh, as opposed to the mini EVs. So as opposed to sedans, maybe we'll, we'll continue with the SUV movement will continue in electric form because there was the amount of electric SUVs at the the show was phenomenal. Hundreds, uh, hundreds wow. of models. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Okay, well, I guess uh, we, will, we will see how that goes. And uh, I think we'll call it a day there. So I will say thank you very much to Cormac and uh, wish him a, a happy Western New Year. It's a little bit early for Chinese New Year, but uh, and uh, season's greetings, and uh, we'll speak to you next year.
1: Yeah, Matt, all the best. Enjoy your uh, holiday season. And well, I guess we'll try and get in a, um, uh, maybe we'll try and get in a uh, best of the year. Or is it something in early January? Yes. Or, yeah, we'll, or, we'll have or, a, a little December bit of a, if you really if want to get it in of January. January.
0: Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. All Thanks the for best. Bye bye. And now on to our interview. We're delighted today to welcome Ken Brinston, MD of ASX-listed Pilbara Minerals. Pilbara's had a pretty stellar run, up over four times in the past twelve months, and it's now a seven billion dollar company. And it's been quite some time since we last talked to Ken on the podcast. That was before the lithium market recovered in April 2020, so we've got quite a lot to talk about. Welcome to Recharge today, Ken. Matt, nice to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Excellent. So since we last talked, the spodumene concentrate price has risen from about $450 a tonne to anywhere between $2,000 and $2,500 a tonne, depending on which price provider you use. Pilbara's bought the old Altura assets, it signed a deal with POSCO to go downstream, and it's in the middle of a major expansion. So there's quite a lot to unpack there. Could we just start off with the industry? Uh, Prices have blown out faster than anybody really expected, even those who saw the supply demand deficit coming. A lot of that has to do with scarcity of material in the system. What are you seeing on inventories at the moment?
2: Yeah, Matt, I agree with the premise that it's pretty incredible how quickly pricing and and demand conditions have bounced back, as you say. it was only you know about September last year where we were receiving what were probably the lowest prices for our cargoes that we'd ever received. Um, so a pretty remarkable turnaround. Um, but I'm pleased to say, some very fundamental kind of structural change that's emerged, which I think goes some way to to, um, answering the premise behind your question. So to deal with the, the first part there being inventory, it's fair to say that lithium units are very scarce. And as such, that's why you're seeing the price response that you're seeing. So I think we can pretty safely say that inventories are low. And they're low across the board, whether it's people having access to, uh, to tons of spodumene concentrate, whether it's you're after industrial or technical grade chemicals, I think pretty much across the board, pricing is indicative of there being very, very little inventory, not much flex in the system. Why so? Well, that's that's the reference to the change in the structure of the market that I was describing. So, in the period of time that the market was down, so now I'm I'm referring to that period between say so the middle of 2018 and and the middle of well, especially the middle of 2020, um, the industry was getting crunched because uh, China had withdrawn a you know a level of subsidy support that meant that there was a bit of a cash crisis flowing through the, the Chinese market. People were looking to lean on on, inventory as part of their solution. So it was very, very difficult on the raw material side and hence pricing becoming very, very weak. However, what was still happening in that period was that the middle section of the supply chain, so value-added chemicals, cathode materials and cell-making, we're very actively invested in. And that's true for both within China and ex-China. And what that's meant is that when demand conditions changed, as they did during the course of 2020, all of that new capacity wanted to run to backfill this fresh wave of demand that emerged post the stimulus around the world in support of the new energy economy. And that that has meant that, that... Plants are looking to run, access to raw materials, there's a dearth of raw materials, hence the, you know, the run in the price that we've seen up to this point with the potential that it's going to yet go higher. So, yeah, pretty remarkable turnaround, but driven by some very fundamental sort of structural changes that that were, well, constructive to demand but at exactly the wrong time as it related to supply because supply was getting crunched by incredibly low pricing. So there was
0: very little investment going on, hence the challenge that the industry sees today, Matt. And that really comes back to to something that we've been banging on a lot about that the um, downstream industry continues to be raising capital much, much more rapidly than upstream. I think on our latest numbers, the EVs and battery space are raising capital about nine times as rapidly as the upstream space, which is obviously just building up a a bigger supply-demand gap, a structural supply-demand gap for later on.
2: Yeah, the end users just haven't done a good enough job understanding upstream, that. I think we can say that pretty plainly now. <laughs> I think we can, and, yeah. Um, yeah, they're going to pay the price for the lack of work that's been done over the last four years. That that to me looks like it's, it's pretty sort of fundamental. It's a fundamental issue for the industry and, and rapidly needs to be resolved. Otherwise, they're going to continue to suffer from extreme pricing outcomes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I have a, a piece out on, uh, on my blog actually yesterday, just highlighting that. And I think that even though the automakers have invested quite substantially in their procurement chains, supply, um, raw material procurement chains, I get the impression that there's a sort of breakdown in communication between the guys who run the procurement departments and the boards of these automakers, because strategically, they just seem to have dropped the ball in terms of putting capital into the raw material end of the supply chain. Yeah, lack of understanding there,
2: mate. And for the moment, well, historically, ignorance has been bliss. uh, (laughs) But but not so
0: much now. (laughs) Exactly. I think it's fair to say that you guys have had quite a substantial impact on the industry's selling price structure, particularly with your BMX auctions, which seem to have led the way to some pretty major changes in spot pricing. Can you talk a little bit about the auctions? And and, and just at the beginning, was the first price that you got, which was so materially above the prevailing spot price at that time, was that a surprise to you that it was so far above the prevailing price? Yeah, by
2: degrees it was, Matt, yeah. But we weren't surprised to see a higher price. I guess just the surprise element was just how much a higher price was received so we we've, we've been getting intel since the middle of last year from you know from the customer base to indicate that demand conditions were materially improving there was still sufficient supply response at that time which meant the pricing wasn't really improving but we could see and we we understood and for that matter received direct inquiry from players within the industry especially those new to the market that didn't have any offtake in place. And that inquiry was starting to become more, more um, well, aggressive, I suppose, is one way you'd describe it. Um, people were getting keener and keener to secure supply. So that was giving us some insight that there were some pretty big changes emerging in the market. And it was at the same time motivating us to, to think about how we could set up a structure that more constructively, Activated that market, hence the the development of the BMX sales platform, which is really just a tool to to access a broader group of buyers at any point in time in the market for any point you know any any product you know whatever that might be whether it's six percent spodgerman concentrate five point five as we've done to date or even lower grades over time so or, or chemicals for that matter as well so emerging demand, new players coming to market. We knew that they weren't well served from an off-take point of view, in which case it made all the sense in the world to create a platform that that further developed the potential in uh, the emerging spot market. And we're pleased to say that that's gone really well. The other thing that represented somewhat of a surprise was the sheer number of people that we could end up vetting for access to the BMX platform. So that is the the number or the potential in the number of buyers. We ended up screening about 30 different groups for access to the BMX platform. Of those 30 different groups, we've had probably about 20 bid. Now, that, that number of buyers did end up surprising us to the upside as well. We had thought that maybe it was about half that. But not, you know, not 20 active bidders, not 30 people entering the system. So but anyway, the trend, the, the trend there was strong and hence our motivation to establish the platform. I guess the last point to be made about the BMX platform itself is that it, it's it's in itself, it's not it's not necessarily, you know, there's no really sophisticated IP, if you like, that exists in respect of that platform. It's just a tool that creates a and a more open marketplace than than perhaps what mean World had been used to historically, but that was exactly the idea we were after. A channel that made sense for buyers, makes sense for us as a seller, and arguably over time it becomes a bigger industry tool. And that there is potential in that. We like the idea that there could be a more liquid market, that there could be many different price points established, more sellers, more buyers, more products. And to us, we think that that might yet make perfect sense.
0: And I guess that sort of feeds on nicely to my next question, because that's certainly you know, something that you're hearing about when you talk to sort of lithium traders about how the behaviour of price negotiations effectively has changed. Are you seeing that at Pilbara? Are you seeing less of a pass-through time between prices? Are you seeing that you're your price realization effectively is coming through much quicker because previously there was about what a 2 or 3 sometimes a 4 month lag on on the prices showing up in your numbers yeah yeah the trend
2: in the negotiations with offtake customers has been to to move what well, actually it's every customer now to a provisional pricing model and then a final price being established for the settlement of the cargo which is meant to approximate more like what the actual lithium value is at the time that, that, that the product's consumed. So, yeah, to us, um, that's created a lesser lag. There is still, depending on the customer, there is still, you know, a very minor period of lag, maybe a month or at the very most, you know, six or eight weeks. So, um, so a step in the right direction there. The other thing that the BMX platform has done, Matt, again, a, a deliberate part of our Pilbara strategy was to demonstrate, you know, the validity of, a, of a, a marginal price for the spot buyer and then use that to demonstrate that there's been a material disconnect between where lithium markets are at as compared to pricing received under the offtake agreements. And that's allowed us to in effect renegotiate the pricing mechanisms to have the offtake price also reflect on something that looks more like a, a current market price for a longer dated contract. Now, I'd make the point that they're not the same thing. So, you're meant to be in this this offtake world for a longer term relationship. The idea that the product is being bought and sold on a more continuous basis a steadier flow of tonnes, so you don't expect your customer to, to necessarily pay a spot price, but it should still be a fair price. Now, the good news is, Matt, that having been through that negotiation, we've now closed that with, with each customer, um, we have achieved a material uplift in the contracted price outcome as well as the price being received for for a spot sale, What that means is, you know, as per our recent guidance, we expect contracted pricing to be in the range of about $1,650, I think, to $1,800 a tonne on a provisional basis for the December quarter. Now, it might yet be higher depending on on what happens with headline chemical pricing for the settlement of a final price, but in any case, you know, much higher price than the equivalent that might have been received historically.
0: Okay, okay, And, And indeed... That's kind of what we're hearing throughout this industry, the, the move more to quarterly pricing realizations rather than annual prices. So you'll see a little bit more price elasticity, even though contracts may be on an annual or biannual basis. So obviously, with the price going so ballistic, supply growth is in, in focus, and, and you talked about that a, a little bit earlier. Just uh, how much have COVID-related travel in Restrictions in Western Australia impacted your ability to grow production as planned. And do you think it's having impacts on the industry as a whole as well?
2: Definitely, Matt. So if I was to think about the mining industry as a whole, as compared to, say, lithium or Pilbara minerals, people pressures are very, very real. The fact that the borders have been closed here in Australia has created put some serious clamps on on the accessibility of people generally. And that's, by the way, is also across the board. It's it's not even just about production. It's also about the construction environment, um, the commissioning environment, uh, the maintenance environment and the operating environment. So they're all impacted in a similar way. Now, our experience, so when I drill down onto Pilbara Minerals in a bit more detail, has been not so bad. We're able to attract candidates... You know, let, let me state it plainly, Matt. You compare, you know, the comparison of building a career in the coal industry holds nothing against the comparison of building your career in the battery raw materials sector. So for mm-hmm. for that reason, we do we do attract more candidates. There's no two ways about it. That's that's a distinct benefit that relates to to our subset of the mining industry. And there's also Pilbara Minerals profile. Our profile has grown a lot in the last 12 or 18 months. So so that also helps in terms of the attraction and retention of personnel. That doesn't mean it's all been easy, though. Um, we've had to take on a lot more people as we've ramped back up our plant capacity and as we've restarted the former Altura operations, now called the Nuggerjew plant. That's meant we've, we've in fact, we've doubled our our Pilbara Minerals workforce, in fact, more than doubled as we've recommenced those operations, ramped up mining and the like, so... But the good news is we've been able to attract those people. doesn't mean it's been easy, but nonetheless, we're perhaps in a better position than most.
0: Are you seeing any impact on production costs because of this? these issues with COVID and particularly with regards to the supply chain? Would you expect those sort of issues to alleviate as sort of free movement returns? I
2: think... The you know if you're the average contractor in Western Australia, you've probably been hit pretty hard by escalation in your labour rates. All of those contractors are fishing now, fishing from the same pond, mm-hmm. uh, and as a result, it's getting harder and harder. And part of the solution for attraction and retention is to offer more money. So, so I think there's been a bit of inflationary pressure there. Um, do the borders help? Yes. I think they do, although I've got to say the east coast of Australia where where you know some some proportion of West Australia's mining workforce comes from is also pretty busy at the moment. a lot of infrastructure jobs on over there and and as a result a lot of construction activity. so as a result it's not necessarily that mobile a workforce does it help probably, but it's not necessarily the complete panacea.
0: okay. Okay. Now, I think it's fair to say that your acquisition of Ultura out of bankruptcy for, I think, what was it, $175 million, looks like it's going to be one of the best bits of business in the lithium space in this cycle. Can you just talk a little bit about what that acquisition brings to Pilbara Minerals? Well, uh, yeah, we, yeah, we feel that that was and,
2: and remains to this day a very, very good deal for Pilbara for Minerals shareholders. Of course, we, we feel for former Altura operations and, and shareholders because um, they were one of the businesses that couldn't survive the down cycle. Why is it important to Pilbara? Well, the, the aggregation of the asset base creates uh, you know a really phenomenal, you know, globally significant you know, lithium raw materials mine. I think Pilgangora is right up there with, with the big ones for the combination of scale, quality in the asset, location, access to infrastructure. You know, it's all pretty, pretty powerful stuff. Um, the fact that there's now two plants creates a significant amount of flexibility as we think about the blending of ore and the blending of concentrates. And you start to generate the combination of economies of scale. Now, the last thing I would mention is... And again, a strategic part of the acquisition was the fact that there was no offtake in place post-receivership. Mm-hmm. To us, that was very valuable because the lack of offtake created the leverage to build out what we've now established in the form of the BMX platform, that is to, to open up at what we perceive to be an important part of the market being spot trading and spot and um, and real price discovery. So, um, for all those reasons, yeah, very important acquisition for for Pilbara and one that I hope our shareholders appreciate, you know, as being a, a really significant value add to our business.
0: And can you just talk a little bit about the the resource? Because I understand there was quite a lot of resource that was sterilised between the two operations, which obviously is now mineable.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit of an unflu- un. Unusual sort of confluence of events there. The, because it's a common tenement boundary with ore running from one side to the other, it was always going to be difficult to mine the entire kind of subset of the ore that was adjacent to the tenement boundary. For that reason, Pilbara had not really explored the area because we, well, at the time we had bigger fish to fry in terms of our, you know, the center of our Pilbangora, historical center of our Pilgangora operations. And with, you know, 40 years of mine life in front of you, you really didn't need to drill too much further south. Mm-hmm. Um, now that we've got the the nugaju plant position, um, the potential in that southern sweep across the, the uh, tenement base is really quite powerful. And as a result, we're going back there and we're drilling. And as you'd expect, we're turning up uh, more resource. And ultimately, so our expectation is that that area will continue to grow We'll be able to build out a longer profile of utilisation of the Nuggerjoo facility, and it might even give us inspiration to revisit the Nuggerjoo facility in terms of debottlenecking the plant and, and improving the uh, both the combination of the plant performance, but also ultimately its capacity. So, so, yeah, a lot more work to be done there, Matt, and that's all part of the,
0: the, the value-add in the acquisition. Okay. Okay. So, uh, away from upstream, you've recently announced that you're going downstream uh, via JV with Posco. Obviously, not new news, but obviously, getting the um, uh, the eyes dotted and the t's crossed is new news. Can you discuss what the benefits of that deal are likely to be for Pilbara shareholders?
2: Yeah. Yeah. The Posco deal is an important manifestation of. Tilburg's kind of medium and long-term strategic objective, which is to become, ultimately, to become uh, more vertically integrated in the lithium supply chain. Basically, what we mean by that is that the, the Pilgangora spodumene concentrate tonnage supply to the market has the potential to be value added. And the reason we think that's an important objective is multifaceted. The first is that if the only product that you had on offer was spodumene concentrate, then you will be principally stuck in the China supply chain unless you can build your own chemical facility or alternatively, like we have with POSCO, work with a partner that can, can value add the product outside of China. Now, that's an important objective for Pilbara Minerals, because it it really stating it plainly, it simply speaks to the idea that we can diversify our sales channels and we're not wholly exposed to one market. That is a logical thing to do and an important part of Pilbara Minerals' future and and that's really what Posco represents. The second uh, Posco deal represents the second thing is that in in. Value adding the product, you can participate in, well, there's economic participation downstream. So, you know, as in theory, you're going to end up with more more value or attributable value to a pilgangora, you know, resource ton. And then the last point I'd make, and this especially relates to the POSCO deal. It's important to be a part of the Korean supply chain because Korea is the next big mover beyond China in respect of volumetric battery making capacity and their ability to interconnect with other international markets. So, you know, South Korea itself, but also the U.S. and, and Europe. So, for all those reasons, we think having Pilgongorus Bodgermain make its way to South Korea is is a good idea. And one that ultimately, you know, adds value to the Pilbara Minerals business. The last point I'd make about this objective is that it's not the only means. So the Posco transaction, a deal like that, is not the only means by which Pilbara proposes to maximise its participation in lithium raw materials. We also have an important project underway, the so-called midstream project, where. We're looking to value-add the spodumene off a Pilgangora base to create industrial salts with with high lithium content, materially higher lithium content as lithium content as compared to spodumene, and then see that product uh, penetrate global markets, especially Europe and the US being the likely next big movers for the sort of front end
0: of the lithium raw material supply chain. Okay, I, I was going to to ask about that. So um how is that project developing? Because I think you said you were progressing towards a PEA. Yeah,
2: that's right. Yeah. So the first round of engineering is now largely complete. That's that's going through its last round of reviews now. And um and we should have more to say about that in the coming weeks. And as a result, you know, demonstrate a pathway to to the creation of the the midstream project as another part of our portfolio
0: in terms of the thinking behind that obviously moving lithium salts rather than spodumene concentrate is you're moving substantially lower amounts of material so your transportation costs are less do you think a, a market will develop for these sort of midstream materials one of the the issues with lithium hydroxide is it's got a relatively short shelf life so do, do you think a market will sort of emerge for these midstream materials, which might be slightly more attractive to move around the world than the lithium hydroxide? Yeah, dare I say it, Matt?
2: If we had the product today, the market would already be there. That would be my <laughs> view. Yeah, I think um, these lithium, this type of lithium unit is going to be valued by the supply chain, and it'll be valued by the supply chain for. Partly for the reason that you've described, but I also think it's going to be ultra competitive in respect of its carbon footprint. Our yeah. proposal yeah. is to create a very, very low carbon footprint product as a function of using renewables for the, the calcination step, you know, off a Pilbara base where, where the renewable resource is very, very strong, and then matching that to the equivalent or the best source of spodumene being the fines flotation concentrate and creating what we think is a valuable salt for the industry because it can, yes, manufacture either carbonate or hydroxide, but also potentially participate directly in in lithium-ion phosphate cathode
0: solutions. You alluded there to environmental issues, and, and I think it's fair to say that they're becoming of increasing interest in the industry, particularly with regards to waste and carbon footprints. You obviously truck your material for substantial distances at the moment. And utilizing grid power, which is quite hydrocarbon intensive. Uh, how are you looking out with the midstream project to lower your environmental footprint?
2: Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's a really important objective. And you've hit the nail on the head there, Matt, in saying that the market's ultimately going to demand those solutions. And yeah, we just feel that being Pilbara-based means we're really well-placed to to offer a competitive solution for ultimately low-carbon uh, low products for the supply chain. And with respect to haulage, mate, I mean, as much as we're 120 kilometres away from the port, I can assure you there's projects that are proposed to be developed that have much, much higher haulage distances than that. And, in fact, by the time you sum through the movement of green bushes or backwards and forwards from you know, from the southwest of WA to Kwinana or vice versa or even to the port, it's it's still a long way and no, probably no further than Pilbara. So, yeah, we feel like we've got a competitive haulage solution. Uh, the mine itself, I'd already mentioned the um, renewables, the board's committed to actually a really big um, solar solution. That'll be commissioned from the middle of next year and that'll likely get bigger over time as the site grows. Um, our expectation is is that we as we move towards the the um, you know net zero target from the decade beginning 2040, uh, the combination of solar and and energy storage is going to become a big part of Pilbara solutions, as will wind. I suspect you get some fantastic diurnal winds in the Pilbara region that will help support the application of renewables and increase the penetration. So plenty to happen in this space, Matt and. And uh, yeah, we think the Pilbara, it's one of the great renewable resources all the way around the world. There's some massive projects being proposed there. And lastly, yeah, the midstream product for which there is a couple of game-changing events and in particular the electrification of the calcination process, which which is really
0: important. Okay, so I mean, uh, just in closing, it's obviously been a great year for the lithium industry in general and Pilbara in particular. What catalysts should shareholders be looking forward to in the next six to twelve months from the company?
2: Well, we've definitely got more growth in production. Some of it's already underway. Pilgan plant improvement projects, and then overdue restart that takes us to five hundred and eighty thousand spodumene concentrate tons by the middle of next year. But given the scale, in the resource, the exploration potential, pit inventory over time, Pilgangora can be a much, much bigger mine site. So our kind of mid-term target is to take spodumene concentrate production to 1 to 1.1 million tonnes per annum, of which, uh, you know, a subset will be value-added ourselves, whether it's via, you know, as we've already spoken to, the relationships with POSCO, the midstream project with Calyx here in Australia um, and maybe yet other downstream initiatives means that we'll have this fantastic portfolio of of market entry points, various products, and ultimately we think that's a great way to play the the front end of the lithium raw materials supply chain, just just make the, the portfolio flexible enough that you can maximise your participation and value added.
0: Excellent. Ken Brinston, MD of ASX-listed Pilbara Minerals. Thanks very much for your time today. Pleasure to be with you, Matt. Thanks for your time. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for December. You can get more detail on any of the topics we discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, Editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.